This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. Think for a moment about the concept of an embassy, the reality of an embassy. An embassy is the nerve center of one nation's diplomatic affairs occurring within the borders of another nation. The, uh, the embassy retains the governing values, structure, priorities of its sending nation while engaging with the host nation. The U.S. Embassy in Paris, for example, is meant to carry out the interests of the United States while in and with France. The global church is a lot like an embassy. Christians are ambassadors. We have been sent by one nation into another to carry out its priorities and affairs. But as the global church, our sending nation is not a geographic country. Uh, Our sending nation is the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are ambassadors belonging to and sent from God's kingdom. But, but not only do the biblical writers establish the fact that we are citizens of heaven, that we are ambassadors belonging to the kingdom of God, the biblical writers go to great lengths to convey to us that we are exiles, foreigners, and strangers in our own nation. 1 Peter chapter 2, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So in relationship to the United States or any global nation, Christians are foreigners. We are exiles. Instead, we are citizens of God's kingdom, ambassadors belonging to God, sent by God to be his representatives to the global nations. Uh, Today and next Sunday, I want to press into a question. I want to try to ask and answer this, this question. The question is this. How do we live as ambassadors of God's kingdom and exiles living in the U.S.? It's the question I want to ask and answer this week and next. How do we live as ambassadors of God's kingdom and exiles living in the U.S.? The first step, I think, in living competently as an ambassador of God's kingdom and an exile in the U.S. is developing a biblical worldview. And today, my my goal is to equip you with the basic building blocks of a biblical worldview. And the basic building blocks of a biblical worldview begin with the overarching storyline of Scripture. Just Just a heads up here. This, this message today is meaty and heavy, so I hope you had your Wheaties and drank your coffee this morning. I was going through this last night thinking to myself, buckle up. <laughs> the first half of this message is laying principles out. The second half of the message, I'm going to work through real-world implications of those principles, okay? The basic building blocks of a biblical worldview begin with the overarching storyline of Scripture. Let me give you a concise way to sum up the entire Bible. Four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. 
okay? That's the whole plot line of Scripture in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And those four words provide us with the basic building blocks of a biblical worldview that will greatly help us to live competently as ambassadors of God's kingdom and exiles living in the United States. So let me work through, I'm going to work through two at a time. Creation, fall, I'm going to start with, and I'll go to redemption and restoration. Okay, what do we mean by creation? That's, it's probably simple enough, it's probably intuitive. What we mean by creation is that God made everything, and he made everything exceedingly good. We start there. Um, God made human beings uniquely in his image and likeness. Uh, God created us, human beings, to delight in him, to serve him, to trust him and obey him. The created world owes him. God as creator grounds all human accountability ultimately back to him. This is what we mean by creation. Now, what do we mean by fall? Well, it starts with Adam and Eve in the garden and their disobedience of God, their rebellion against the creator. It's, it's the usurping of the creator. It's our shaking our fist at the creator, saying, I will be God. And of course, that ushers in with it a whole slew of ramifications. It's the birth of self-focus, the desire to dominate, manipulate others that manifests itself in things like rape, greed, bitterness, racism, war. And of course, with this comes death, both physical and spiritual. This is what we mean by the fall. Now listen, both categories of creation and fall exist simultaneously in our world. Okay, they exist simultaneously. Let's do a thought experiment here. If creation existed without the fall, what would life be like? If creation existed without the fall, what would life be like? Well, we would be in Eden right now enjoying perfect fellowship with God and every human being born since Adam and Eve, and we'd be doing it naked. How that's paradise for some of us doesn't compute. <laughs> Creation without fall doesn't have death. It doesn't have sickness. It doesn't have poverty. It doesn't have injustice. Clearly, that's not where we're living. Now, if the fall, I realize this is impossible, but if the fall could somehow exist, Without creation, what would life be like? Well, any one of us would be lucky to be alive today. Because there's no inherent goodness that is preventing anyone from being snuffed out. It's only because creation retains something of its former perfection that we experience anything good in this world. This is what theologians call common grace. Common grace is the reason non-Christians are capable of displaying justice and righteousness even though they're not united to Christ. They retain something of their former perfection. Okay, so when you blend together the biblical categories of creation and fall, what do you have? You've got a real mixed bag, don't you? You've got a real mixed bag. You've got places in creation where you can see God's goodness reflected. But then you got places in creation where you just see the corrupt and sinful state. And it's like a pile of spaghetti. It goes together. It's intertwined. Difficult to separate. 
In pondering this concept, D.A. Carson writes this. He says, Christians cannot long think about Christ and culture without reflecting on the fact that this is God's world. But that this side of the fall, this world is simultaneously resplendent with glory and awash in shame. And that every expression of human culture simultaneously discloses that we were made in God's image and shows itself to be misshaped and corroded by human rebellion against God. Creation and fall yield a real mixed bag. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, our stance toward every human culture should be one of critical enjoyment and an appropriate wariness. Yes, we should enjoy the insights and the creativity of other peoples and cultures. We should recognize and celebrate expressions of justice, wisdom, truth, and beauty in every culture. But, but, we approach every culture with awareness that it has been distorted by sin. All cultures contain elements of darkness and light. In other words, when you look at any culture, especially our own, we need to look at it through the biblical lens of creation and fall simultaneously. So with that established, it is incredibly naive to say traditional conservative cultures are biblical while liberal secular cultures are immoral and evil. It's incredibly naive to say that. Because every culture, whether traditional or liberal, is a mixed bag. Every culture retains elements of God's original created goodness. Every culture has been deeply impacted by its own idolatries. To be sure, liberal idols have cultures. Liberal cultures have idols. Liberal cultures often elevate the individual and, and personal freedom to an absolute value, leading to the evils of family and community erosion. And, and the lack of integrity in business and sexual practices. But traditional cultures have idols too. Traditional cultures have often elevated family or ethnicity to an absolute value, leading to the evils of racism, tribalism, patriarchy, and other forms of moralism and oppression. Every culture is a mixed bag. So let's, let's think about this a little bit further. What happens... If you look at a particular culture through the lens of creation, but not the fall, what happens if you looked at a particular culture through the lens of creation, but not the fall? Well, you end up seeing that culture through rose-colored glasses. If all we see in a particular culture is creation, but not the fall, we elevate the culture. We deem that particular culture superior, and we succumb to the sin of ethnocentrism. Flip the question, what happens if you look at a particular culture through the lens of the fall, but not creation? You deem that culture evil, and you withdraw from it completely, or you try to destroy it, succumbing to the sin of ethnocentrism. A few months ago, we did a series in the book of Jonah. This is Jonah's problem. Jonah's great sin was the sin of ethnocentrism, close cousin of racism. How did Jonah get there? Jonah looked at his own culture through the lens of creation, but not the fall. And he looked at the culture, Ninevite culture, through the lens of the fall, but not creation. The result? Ethnocentrism and his desire to see the Ninevites eradicated. The irony of this is that Jonah was sent to Nineveh to be an ambassador. But he was lousy at it. 
because he had a horrible worldview. You will not be a competent ambassador for the cause of Christ if you're not able to look at your culture, at other cultures, through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay, let me take the next two. Redemption, restoration. And after we do that, I'm going to flesh out some implications of, of this. What do we mean by redemption? Well, the climax of redemption is Jesus' cross work. It's Jesus saving and transforming sinners. That's the culmination of redemption. Now, we have dozens of types of redemption that happen throughout Scripture. I'll give you one example. God saving his people from slavery in Egypt, rescuing them from oppression and tyranny. It's a type of redemption. This is what we mean by redemption. It is ultimately God saving and transforming sinners. What do we mean by the restoration? It's a future event. Jesus is coming back. The new heavens and the new earth is yet to come. And only the restoration is going to end the evils of racism, of poverty, of injustice. Only the restoration is going to end all mourning, crying, tears, and pain. Okay? I want us to blend those two together, redemption and restoration, because we have to see all four simultaneously in order to have a biblical worldview. Okay, so let's work on redemption and restoration together. As with creation and fall, redemption and restoration has a tension with it. Oftentimes, the theologians will use the phrase, already, not yet. Already, not yet, to sum up redemption and restoration. Let me give you some examples of that. First example, on the one hand, God is in the business of saving and transforming sinners. That is the already. On the other hand, saved sinners still wrestle with sin. <laughs> That's the not yet. Let me give you another example. Christians experience wonderful moments of sweet joy. Do we not in this world? On the other hand, we also experience bitter moments of suffering, taxing adversity. That's the not yet. One more. Churches experience fruitful times of ministry where, where lost people are getting converted and, and Christians are growing in holiness and there's a spirit of unity. That's the already. On the other hand, churches also go through times of trial, tribulation, great challenge. That's the not yet. Do you see the tension? <laughs> so the biblical realities of redemption and restoration of the already not yet provide us with a wonderfully rich balance for optimism and moderation. Optimism and moderation. Okay, let's, let's do some thought experiments on those two. What happens... If we leave out redemption and only have the future restoration in view. If we leave out redemption, we only have the future restoration in view. I'll tell you what's going to happen. We're going to be incredibly pessimistic about our current state. We will look at our world with, with little or no hope for God to do anything good with it. We're going to have little energy to engage in ministry because we don't, in the end, believe anything's going to be fruitful. And we will so look forward to Jesus coming back, we may find ourselves obsessed with charts 
and scouring the news headlines for, for, for end time events. In other words, a worldview with only the future restoration in view will be of little help to those around you. Flip the question. What happens if we leave out the future restoration and only have redemption in view? Well, we're going to be very active. Very active in ministry, believing God to work redemption in the lives of people around us. But we may also have an overly optimistic view a rose-colored view of what's possible. So when things don't go the way we expect them to, we'll be deeply discouraged. And that discouragement may lead us to being oppressive to those we're trying to minister to, to force them through the door, because we have no role for the future restoration in view. The building blocks of a biblical worldview begin with creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Those four words, those concepts, should be the lens through which we view every culture, especially our own. Especially our own. And they should inform how we live as ambassadors of God's kingdom and exiles in the U.S. I, I realize that this material is heady stuff. It's weighty. It's dense. I get it. Uh, but we live in a day and age where Christians cannot afford to be mindless about this. Mindless Christianity leads to erroneous views of the world and does more harm than good. But I want to finish this message by fleshing out five implications of this worldview. There are dozens of them, okay? There are dozens of implications for this worldview. But I want to flesh out five uh, in hopes that it will provide you with a model for how to use creation, fall, redemption, restoration as you watch the events unfold around us. Okay? Here are five. First, persecution needs to be embraced as normal. Persecution needs to be embraced as normal. As we watch current events unfold around us, I've been a little bit surprised by the shock some Christians have expressed over these events. Um, just to talk turkey with you, the loss of religious freedom should not shock Christians. Shouldn't shock you. I'm not saying religious freedom isn't a good thing. It is a good thing. I think 1 Timothy 2 gives us some warrant to pray for religious freedom. However, the loss of it should not shock us. Why? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We live in a world where the fall has catastrophic and ongoing effects. And the future restoration is still yet to come. There are going to be times of difficulty. So temper your expectations accordingly. C.S. Lewis had his typical vivid and, and humorous way of putting it. He writes this. He says, if you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place of training and correction, and it's not so bad. Imagine a set of people all living in the same building. Half of them think it is a hotel. The other half think it is a prison. Those who think it a hotel might regard it as quite intolerable. 
And those who thought it was a prison might decide that it was really surprisingly comfortable. So that what seems the ugly doctrine is one that comforts and strengthens you in the end. The people who tried to hold an optimistic view of this world would become pessimists. The people who hold a pretty stern view of it become optimistic. We live in a world that's ravaged by the effects of the fall. We live in a world where the future restoration is just that. Still future. While persecution is evil and sinful, Christians need to see it as normal. Number two, utopianism is a trap. Utopianism is a trap. A utopia is an imagined state of things where everything is perfect, right? It's a perfect society. To long for a utopia this side of heaven is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. Why? Because the restoration is a future event yet to come. One country's diplomatic or military efforts is not going to bring about a utopia. The church isn't even going to bring about a utopia. The Bible's clear on that. Only God has the power to do that. Only God can do that. Now, to long for God to bring about the new heavens and the new earth is biblical. To develop a, a homesickness for the new heavens and the new earth is biblical. To pray with the Apostle John, even so, come Lord Jesus, is biblical. So yes, we should feel a sadness over the celebration of sin in our culture, but having a desire for the U.S. or any country to be a utopia is a trap and it's biblically unwarranted. Number three, look for the creational good in other worldviews and cultures. Look for the creational good in other worldviews and cultures. One Christian thinker recalls a story that illustrates what I'm talking about here. He writes this, Once I spoke at a secular gathering on a university campus on the issue of abortion. There were people gathered from every imaginable religious group and many with no religious convictions at all. I spoke about why I care about the unborn, about Jesus' identification with the vulnerable, about the gospel's message of death as curse. I went on to say that even those who disagree with me on why I care about this, nonetheless can see the wrongness of the powerful preying on the weak, on denying personhood to a neighbor based simply on her stage development. After I finished, the next speaker was an impressive young Muslim student who read from the Quran. My mind was wandering as I was thinking about my to-do list for the next day. I then heard this young woman say something about caring for elderly parents and about how this should not be done with drudgery since our parents once fed us, clothed us, cleaned up after us. I said, amen. Suddenly, I realized that I had just said amen to the Quran and looked furtively around to see if any evangelicals noticed, afraid they might start a conspiracy that I was a secret Muslim spy or something. But in reality, what this young woman did was entirely appropriate. She didn't appeal to the Quran as a means of silencing debate. She was revealing why the issue was of significance to her. And in so doing, she prompted me to reflect on the same matters from my own Christian vantage point. That is not theocracy. It is consciences calling out to consciences, and we should have more of it. See, living with a biblical worldview means viewing every culture through the lens of creation and fall simultaneously, which means every culture will in some way retain the creational good that God put there. That's what this Christian thinker was doing when he said amen to a Muslim student's declaration about caring for elderly parents. He's not dismissing this other culture, this worldview, out of hand. 
He is putting creation, fall, redemption, restoration right in front of his eyes as he takes in that culture, as he takes in that worldview. And because there is creational good implanted in every culture and every worldview, he's filtering it through that lens. Number four. See same-sex marriage through the lens of fall and redemption. If you were dozing off, Wake up. I'm going to spend a little more time with this, so track with me here. See, same-sex marriage through the lens of the fall and redemption. I want you to imagine being the disciples standing at the foot of the cross. Imagine you are one of the disciples, and you're standing at the foot of the cross. Over the past three years, you had seen Jesus do some remarkable things. You watched him walk on water. You watched him calm storms. You watched him heal multitudes. You watched him raise dead people to life. And he looked unstoppable. As you're sitting there, as you're standing at the foot of the cross, probably in in the memories of things you've seen him do, you wondered if, if Jesus could just snap his fingers and make the Roman Empire go away. But now, his blood is puddling at the foot of the cross as the life is slowly drained out of him. And maybe you think to yourself, what happened? How did we get here? To our eyes, Jesus on a cross looks like a cultural crisis of epic proportions. But the irony of the cross is this. What looked like Satan's victory was actually his defeat. What looked like Satan's victory was actually his defeat. On the surface, a cultural crisis can appear like a victory for the enemy, but the cross shows us it may actually be his defeat. This is one reason why I have remained very hopeful in the aftermath of the same-sex marriage ruling. When the Supreme Court levied its decision a couple years ago, for many with even in the evangelical world, the sky was falling. There was panic. I made it a point at that time to carefully listen to what professing Christians were saying and how they were responding to this, and I was largely disappointed at what I was hearing. I heard very few interpreting this through the lens of a biblical worldview. Most, if they were honest, were probably interpreting it through a political worldview. The irony of the cross is this. What looked like Satan's victory was actually his defeat. On the surface, a cultural crisis may appear like a victory for the enemy, but the cross shows us it may actually be his defeat. Could it be that the same-sex marriage ruling looked like a victory for the enemy, but instead actually be his defeat? I believe so. Let's let Scripture explain how this is possible. You remember the very famous scene in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. 
Satan successfully convinces Adam and Eve that their lives were not as good as they could be. He got them to be discontent with the way God made things and made them. So he plants this idea in their minds that if they eat from the one tree God told them not to, their lives will become better than they currently are. Before you know it, Adam and Eve buy the lie. And they begin saying to themselves, if only we eat from that tree, then, then we can be happy. Then we can be satisfied. So they eat. And how did that turn out for them? They became worse than they were before. Right? They became worse than they were before. They got the one thing they thought they needed to be content, and their lives became a nightmare. It's been the life mission of many within the same-sex community to see same-sex marriage legalized. I would argue that for a good number of them, they have looked at this as the defining moment of their lives. For years, probably more than a few individuals have thought, if only same-sex marriage would be legalized, then my life would have meaning. Well, they got what their hearts wanted most. Now what? Will their lives become all they imagined it could be? If the Bible is correct, and for the record, I believe the Bible's correct, they are reliving the Garden of Eden all over again. And not only will their lives not become all they imagined they could be, their lives are going to become worse than they were before. And some of them, some of them, are going to come to realize this. So where will they turn? Because we live with a biblical worldview that includes redemption as a present reality, I believe Christians and churches need to be ready to receive with grace and truth the refugees of this sexual revolution. I believe there's going to come a day when a few of them will come to us empty and confused, wondering why they're empty and confused. And Christians and churches need to be ready for opportunities to present to these victims of deception the only thing that can truly satisfy the gospel of Jesus Christ. What looked like a victory for the enemy may actually be his defeat because in the end, the same-sex marriage ruling may actually send more lost people into the saving arms of Jesus where they will find the very thing same-sex marriage could not give them. The reason I've remained hopeful through these past couple of years has been due to the creation, fall, redemption storyline. If you find yourself getting super bummed out at any point as you watch the events unfold around you, go back and do some critical self-assessment as to whether you're seeing this through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Last, number five, rest in the certainty of the future restoration. The Christians Peter addresses in his first letter to them are facing cultural crises. 
Time and again, Peter talks about the persecution they're facing, but the persecution they're facing most likely is not physical violence in 1 Peter. It's social and economic persecution. Most scholars seem to agree that what the Christians in 1 Peter are facing is the loss of property, the loss of religious freedom. But you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that's their condition by looking at how Peter begins the book. He doesn't begin the book by addressing their cultural crises directly. No mention's made of it in the first handful of verses. Instead, he begins by focusing their attention on eternity, their future hope, the inheritance that awaits them. So why does Peter take this pastoral approach? Okay. If you're in the thick of feeling some tough stuff as you are the object of persecution, social and religious, aren't you waiting for Peter to talk about your problem? You have to wait before he gets there. Instead, he's, he's, he's enamored with this future inheritance, this hope that's stored up for you in heaven that will appear at the dawning of the end. I mean, that's where he's preoccupied. Why does he take that pastoral approach? If your greatest hope is for this life, you will be crushed by cultural crises. Because cultural crises will be viewed as threats to your greatest hope. If your greatest hope, on the other hand, is for the life to come, threats to this life, while at times frustrating and painful, are not going to derail you. In other words, we have to live with the restoration as a future but certain event. Carl F.H. Henry is a name worth knowing. Carl F.H. Henry. He was born in 1913, died in 2003. He was the founding editor of Christianity Today, to, even to this day the most widely circulated Christian magazine. He wrote a book entitled The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, which some of my professors from seminary recommend reading to this day. Henry was in his 80s at the time, and he was hanging out with some 20-something doctoral students. And these 20-something doctoral students were having a conversation with each other in the presence of Henry, bemoaning the state of American evangelicalism. They were mourning the loss of robust doctrinal preaching, the lack of discipleship in the American church, and the stream of clergy scandals emblazoned on the headlines of news organizations. This went on for a little while until the 80-something-year-old piped up and he spoke. And when Carl F.H. Henry spoke, everybody listened. This is what he said. Why, you speak as though Christianity were genetic. Of course there's hope for the next generation of the church. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from current Christian subculture. They are probably still pagans. Henry continued, Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up C.S. Lewis, once an agnostic professor? Or Charles Colson, once Richard Nixon's hatchet man, 
to lead the 20th century church? They were unbelievers who, once saved by the grace of God, were mighty warriors of the faith. The next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. Eighty-something-year-old man speaking into the lives of 20-somethings who think they know it all. What I find interesting about Henry's statement is that plastered all over it is the plot line of Scripture. His view of creation doesn't lead him to want to separate from or destroy the cultures who are antagonistic towards his own. His view of the fall leads him to see the sinful realities of Saul, of C.S. Lewis, of Charles Coulson, and the future Billy Graham. His view of redemption keeps him optimistic that God can and has rerouted into an entirely different direction individuals like Saul and Charles Coulson. And his view of the future restoration allows him to admit the shortcomings of the American church without retreating into despair. Listen, Christianity is colliding with culture. It's colliding with culture. So if you want to stay buoyant, if you want to stay buoyant when the clashes break out, you need to learn to see all of life and every culture through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in considering these topics this morning, what we're really trying to do is, is see the universe through your eyes, which is undoubtedly the best perspective to have. So I pray that you would, that you would work that vantage point into us. Lord, as we take this with us this week, help us to begin to, uh, to see the ways in which we have erroneous views of culture or the world. Help us to see where we need to have this biblical worldview reestablished in how we look at stuff. I pray you'd help us to see the creational goodness that you've implanted in, church, in cultures other than our own. Help us to see the reality of the fall within our own cherished cultures. I pray for modest optimism as we engage in ministry, knowing that making kingdom inroads is possible. I pray that while we will be active in ministry, we won't allow that to temper our desire to see Jesus come back. So once again, Lord, we thank you for the encouragement and direction your word has given us this morning. We are grateful to you for it. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.